0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Coastal Conundrum Podcast, the go-to show about the art of developing and implementing coastal policies that strike a balance between coastal ecosystems, economies, and communities in a landscape that is getting progressively more dynamic as a result of climate change. I'm your host, Bill O'Byrne. Adapting to impacts such as sea level rise, coastal flooding, extreme rainfall events, ocean acidification and drought, and now human health impacts, already are and will increasingly be a major issue for coastal communities and policymakers. Today, I'm gonna be talking with some experts on the most recent National Climate Assessment, uh, the most authoritative description of the state of the climate science, current and expected climate impacts, and efforts to mitigate those impacts through adaptation in the U.S. For some background, the U.S. Global Change Research Program published volumes one and two of the fourth National Climate Assessment in 2017 and 2018, respectively. And as Dr. Catherine Hayhoe has succinctly put it, Volume 1, the Climate Science Report, sets out to answer the questions, is climate change real, is it us, is it serious, and how long do we have to do something about this? While Volume 2 sets out to tackle the myth that climate change is a distant issue only affecting future generations and places far away, and we really aren't doing much uh, to reduce or mitigate these uh, impacts today. So I'm super excited to have two of the authors of the fourth National Climate Assessment on the show today, Dr. Jeffrey Payne and Dr. Roger Pawarty. Dr. Payne was, uh, was the lead author of the coastal effects chapter in volume two of the assessment. Jeff is the director of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's, or NOAA's, Office for Coastal Management in Charleston, South Carolina. His office coordinates the nation's coastal management activities and is very focused on enhancing coastal resilience nationwide. Jeff previously served as the Deputy Director of NOAA's Coastal Services Center, the Deputy Chief of Staff for NOAA, Acting Deputy Assistant Administrator for the National Ocean Service, and as an Office of Management and Budget budget Examiner for the Marine Mammal Commission in NOAA. Dr. Paul was the author of several chapters of Volume 2 of the assessment, including chapters on water, U.S. Caribbean region, and reducing risk through adaptation actions. Roger is the director of NOAA's National Integrated Drought Information System, or NIDIS, in Boulder, Colorado. And Roger has been the lead author of several chapters and reports for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. He has served on climate-related committees on the U.S. National Academy of Sciences and acts in advisory roles on climate, natural resources, and disaster management to several U.S. and international interests. So full disclosure here, I've known and worked with Jeff and Roger for some time. So it's a real treat to be able to talk to you today about the National Climate Assessment and how our audience can best use it and where efforts to adapt to these impacts stand and maybe going um, in the future. But first, uh, we have to pay the bills. So here's a word from our sponsors.
1: The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at LJA.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your Dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable Dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the dunesciencegroup.com.
0: Okay, before we dive uh, into talking about the assessment, uh, Roger and Jeff, please tell the listeners um, a bit about yourselves, your backgrounds, and what brought you to be working on coastal and climate resilience issues. Uh, Let's, Jeff, let's start with you and then Roger.
2: Okay. Thank you, Bill. And, and thanks for the opportunity to join the conversation. Um, I'm honored to actually be sharing some perspectives on the National Climate Assessment next to Dr. Polwarty, whom I've known for many years uh, and who I uh, highly respect as an international leader in climate research and societal interest uh, and has been doing this for years and has done some very specialized work in the Caribbean that I think you'll be hearing uh, more about from him. Uh, as for me, I, I've been involved with public service through my work with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration for about 25 years. Uh, my background is actually in marine geophysics, but for the last two decades, uh, I've been uh, involved in, in what's called coastal management and, and uh, the facets of that, including policy development, translating science to societal needs, and, and helping coastal communities enhance their resilience to natural hazards and indeed climate impacts, the subject uh, for today. Um, And this is an exciting area to work in because we are experiencing changes in our environment, uh, without a doubt. And these changes uh, compel us to try to better understand the risks that we face and to work in partnership to reduce our environmental, uh, societal, and economic vulnerability to the negative consequences of these changes. And I, and I want to uh, stress that, you know, coastal areas and, and coasts matter. Uh, here are some good reasons why. Um, you know, over 40 percent of the U.S. population actually lives and works along the coast. And that's essentially about 10 percent of the U.S. landmass mass uh, where the population resides. And the largest percentage of our international trade, for example, arrives and leaves via our many commercial ports. Um, I wanna highlight a a just published set of economic statistics that were jointly developed by my office and uh, the Department of Commerce's Bureau of Economic Analysis. These new stats document that in uh, the year 2018, uh, latest year for which we have the data, The U.S. marine economy represented about $373 billion of the U.S. gross domestic product. Uh, And this is actually a contribution which is bigger than the U.S. agricultural sector or even public utilities. Uh, And further, this sector is growing fast. It grew faster than the wider U.S. economy in 2018. So. my point here is that our oceans and our coasts are connected and nca4 actually treats uh that same kind of dynamic um and the other reason why this is important is because some of the most devastating natural hazards occur along our coasts such as hurricanes and related flooding and we're experiencing an increased frequency in what are called tidal flooding days or recurrent flooding days in communities Uh, due to elevated sea levels in many geographies, coastal geographies. Uh, And this tends to disrupt normal everyday life and it has economic consequences. So uh, again, my point is that the oceans and coasts are connected and coastal dependent businesses and industries and people uh, are really all a part of that important economic uh, and, and person engine for the nation. And when we have hazards and we have a changing climate, including the negative impacts Uh, combined with the fact that there are more people in harm's way because they live along the coast, this argues for us to think uh, more constructively about how we can reduce risks moving into the future. Um, And that's where we especially have to be paying attention to a changing climate and to increase our coastal resilience. So that's a little bit about me and, and why I do what I do, because it's an exciting time and an exciting area to be working in.
0: Great, Jeff. And, uh, and by the way, was that uh, coastal uh, geophysics? Uh, were you in, uh, did you study that in uh, at Texas A& m Is that right? Are you an Aggie? I am an Aggie Bill. yeah. you holding that against me? No, I okay. that was just crucial <laughs> crucial pieces of information. No. So Roger, Roger, have a little bit about your you and your background and and uh, how you got into this business.
3: You bet. Um, so it's great to, to you know, share the time with everyone and, and with, with Jeff again, you know, not to sound like we're just patting each other, but someone who's been, like Dr. Payne, been involved in basically, I think, playing a central role in why, in fact, we are a bit more resilient than we have been and why, in fact, some events that we experience on the coast and elsewhere and how we manage things sustainably uh, he's played a central role in making those things happen and in leading, not just NOAA, but really leading partnerships with communities across the federal system, um, non-governmental organizations of local communities, in the types of partnerships that are needed to, to deal with, not just manage the risk of a changing environment, but actually to take advantage of some of the opportunities that are in there. Um, and, and Bill as well. Now, I originally grew up, I grew up in the Caribbean. And so the first thing you face, of course, are coastal risks, uh, things related to um, sea level, of course, the storm surge, as you heard, critical uh, infrastructure damage, um, recurrent coastal flooding, but also the amenities and the benefits of being on the coast, the, not just the sun, sand, sea, and surf, but the incredible interaction of the marine system With the land system with the watersheds with the coastal environments with forests and other things the coast is really the dynamic environment and in fact the earliest work i was engaged in on coastal environments were in hurricane impacts and um and the socioeconomic uh uh, impacts of those events but how we respond to them a lot of the work um i've been engaged in as bill mentioned i've worked on drought issues i'm i'm the uh, senior scientist in a lab in Boulder, Colorado. I live in Boulder, I've been here for over 30 years. But um, as some of you would know, being from an uh, island environment in the Caribbean, Boulder is also, some people might say that's another island environment. Um, so so really working on where I'm from and where I live now. And so my background is as a climate scientist um, with actually a heavy uh dose of uh, economic assessment, vulnerability analyses, and so on as well. In the same way that Jeff is describing, we've come to know being able to do things like the National Climate Assessment as requiring more than one discipline. So the way we've gone about this is say, okay, what do we need to understand from different methods? What do we need to understand from the context, the values that people hold? And then how do we approach the problems that exist and take advantage of them? I wanted to add one other sort of um, economic issue to to Jeff's um, uh, recount. And for many people, even though the coast in the U.S. occupies the coast itself, about less than 10 percent of the aerial extent of the United States, leaving out Alaska. It actually, when you add up the the economics in the way Jeff just did, is actually the third largest economy in the world behind the US and China. So if we were to just take out the coast as its own world or own country, it is actually the third largest economy. So in keeping those things in mind and, and the benefits it provides, but also the sense of history and you know the things that have gone through and past our ports, um, and then the partnerships between the Caribbean and in the Gulf and elsewhere, this forms a basis for my interest in this area.
0: Great. Wow. those are those are some um, pretty overwhelming statistics. Uh, so, uh, Jeff and Roger, uh, can you share then some of the most relevant findings uh, related to the impacts on this very very important uh, part of the U.S. Uh, with regard to uh, impacts on water um, and impacts to the coast? Uh, Jeff, why don't we start with you for uh, with coast and oceans, and then Roger will get to you.
2: So regarding the, the NCA for National Climate Assessment, fourth version, uh, there were three before this, as, as uh, seems to be implied. Uh, the chapter that I led was called Coastal Effects. And, and to set some context on that, I think it's helpful to first establish the scientific findings that drive our interests in the key vulnerabilities and impacts to the functioning of coastal communities and natural coastal systems. Um, Rogers is very familiar with with many of these stats and would do a much better job than I at relating them. But um, looking at some of the the uh, preeminent attributes or factors that are involved, um, our 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 global average surface air temperature is increasing. It's increased by about 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit over the last 115 years during the Industrial Revolution, modern civilization essentially, um, and increased global temperatures are resulting in the melting of uh, Earth's ice masses, uh, but also global sea levels are rising due to uh, that factor combined with the fact that water expands when it warms. So the ocean is um, essentially expanding, its greater volume uh, causes it to rise at the shorelines. Um, So this global average sea level has risen by about seven to eight inches. This is documented since uh, 1900, with almost half of that rise, interestingly, occurring since 1993. So we see some acceleration as well. And and there's a high confidence that the frequency and extent of what I mentioned before, this thing called tidal flooding, sunny day, recurrent, nuisance flooding, you name it, uh, is already increasing and will continue to increase with sea level rise. So for example, the incidence of daily tidal flooding is accelerating in more than 25 uh, Atlantic and Gulf Coast cities in particular. our coastal effects author team, We what we do is we, we develop key messages in, in the NCA volumes. And, and the three key messages within the coastal effects chapter were uh, about economies and property already at risk, about the environments that are already at risk, and also about uh, societal challenges that are being intensified. And I, I just want to really focus on just the first and the third. Um, regarding the economies and the property at risk, this is really um, a lot about what I would call America's trillion dollar coastal property market and, and public infrastructure. It's threatened by the ongoing increase in the frequency and the depth and the extent of tidal flooding due to sea level rise. And, and with the, this, there are cascading impacts to the larger economy. We've been talking a lot about economy here. Uh, higher storm surges due to sea level rise are also a factor. Uh, And that is combined with the increased probability of heavy precipitation events. This all heightens the risk. So under certain scenarios, what are called climate warming scenarios, um, at a high scenario, uh, we can probably expect, uh, in the assessment documents that we would uh, likely uh, see, that many coastal communities would be transformed by the latter part of this century in one way or another. Uh, and even under lower scenarios, uh, many individuals and communities will suffer financial impacts as uh, chronic high tide flooding leads to higher costs and lower property values. So coastal infrastructure is at risk, people are at risk. Um, you know, roads, bridges, tunnels, well pipelines, you name it. Uh, all of these are important uh, lifelines between uh, coastal and in- inland communities as well. Uh, and damage to this infrastructure is going to result in cascading costs and national impacts. But there is, you know, some good news. I don't want to be uh, Pollyannish about this, but there's good news in that uh, cumulative damages to coastal property really could be significantly reduced if adaptation measures are implemented, um, including everything from classical mitigation measures for flooding, uh, but also, you know, the smart Uh, future siting of infrastructure and utilization of things like natural assets, what we call natural nature-based infrastructure uh, to enhance coastal protection. But the the key message that I really loved working on with our team was uh, about the intensification of societal challenges. And I talked a little bit about that in in the comments I just made. Um, I noted that the pace and extent of coastal flooding and erosion is accelerating, Um, And this and other climate change impacts are exacerbating what we call pre-existing social inequities. Um, So looking forward, communities are are going to face difficult questions about uh, determining, for example, who will pay for current impacts and and future adaptation and mitigation strategies as as climate change proceeds. Um, And one of those questions is knowing if and when to potentially relocate communities. And that's a really, really hard conversation to have with any community, uh, because communities are tied to where they grew up. So um, we're going to see actual and projected climate change, losses and damages, coastal communities will be among the first in the nation to test these existing um, uh, climate relevant legal frameworks, uh, be be it as they are. And and the policies as well against these impacts, and it's going to likely establish precedents that will affect both co- both coastal and, and non-coastal regions over time. So I'm, I'm talking about you know to some degree underrepresented and underserved communities um, because they face additional threats from climate change compared to uh, other communities, and we need to think about you know what we're going to do about that as a uh, society and as you know government uh, and or governance institutions. But I think what's really important to understand here is that society has limited if not finite resources to help individuals and communities adapt to climate change and adaptation is what we're going to need to do we're going to need to adapt both individuals and communities are starting from different levels of readiness to adapt and society will have to address some fundamental considerations so for example, um, will society choose an equal allocation of resources where everyone gets the same amount of help uh, or choose to distribute resources uh, equitably to give people what they need to reach the same level of adaptation, kind of the, the fairness quotient. So these are really interesting socioeconomic, social dynamic questions. Uh, they range from policy to governance to practical considerations of costs. And you know, it's a finding But it's also a a recognition that the future holds these kinds of challenges. So uh, our our third key message dealing with this, I found to be fascinating to work on and to kind of put out there as one of the things that we will continue, hopefully now, to uh, be paying more attention to.
0: Yeah, it it was funny. We were talking to Skip Stiles of the um, Wetlands Watch back at the, um, uh, oh gosh, now I can't even think of the name of it. at the social coast forum a while ago. And I think he, he put the, the nub of, of what the real problem is, um, very well in that, uh, his comment was how do you fashion a, an orderly reinvestment in the coast versus, uh, disorderly disinvestment from a laissez faire perspective. And I think that that is a lot of what that adaptation is really trying to get at. Um, and so Roger, let's move over to Roger. Roger, could you uh, give us uh, some of the highlights, some of the re- most relevant findings uh, from some of your chapters or others that, that might also touch on coastal issues?
3: Oh, great. That, that usually makes me more productive. They, so one of the, um, the things I would like to, to add, um, it's actually not even adding, it's complementary to what you just heard, was in fact this opportunity To actually guide our investments in ways that are more, um, that produce even larger economic benefits and social and environmental benefits over time. So it's really an opportunity for helping to make those decisions. We've seen uh, in some of the different results that. Certainly, in other communities where where investments in mangroves actually, because of of the additional benefits from fisheries and recreation, but also from managing coastal floods, can yield up to ten times the cost of their uh, input. We've seen where one dollar uh, upfront helps us save uh, four to seven dollars in future di- in avoided costs to from disasters. So when we went through speaking about the adaptation issues we were certainly looking at where those opportunities were for investment. The challenges in water lay around the changes in water quality and quantity, Um, dry dry areas in the desert southwest of the United States, and of course, then wetter uh, conditions in the Midwest and on the coastal environments. But there's also a, a sort of paradoxical statement for the Gulf region. The Caribbean, while at the same time, is experiencing as you saw some more extreme storms um, in fact in 2017 and this comes out from the chapter in 2017 we actually saw um, you know some places hit in fact four four countries hit by two storms in the same year at the same time they're experiencing some of the driest periods on record the 2013 to 2016 was actually one of the worst drought periods on in on the record, in the Gulf region and the Caribbean. So this link between the changing nature of extremes that jefta outlined, droughts to floods and back, is becoming one of the complex challenges of adapting and adjusting in a changing world. Now, one of the things as we begin to think through this is the nature of our infrastructure. And we documented in the water chapter that in fact, a lot of our water infrastructure or dams or or guidance systems or or transportation systems for water are at risk. And this is an area uh, because of aging. And this is an area in which, as Jeff was just pointing out, the existing conditions and the existing nature of our risks and vulnerabilities can either make things worse, or if we invest in the right way, we can get, uh, we can actually, Make even more productive environments. Um, a global assessment showed that a uh, trillion dollars of incremental costs in maintaining making infrastructure more resilient will lead will give us four and a half trillion dollars over the next century. So the return on, on investing up front is actually pretty clear for both disasters and hazards and for managing infrastructure. As we think through this, I did want to step back a little bit and just give a bit of context for the National Climate Assessment Report so that folks know where some of this is is coming from. The U.S. Global Change Research Program uh, actually began as a presidential initiative under President um, Bush Sr. in 1989, was mandated by Congress. And the entire goal is to actually integrate and evaluate what many agencies are doing to help the nation address and respond to a changing environment. And that's where these two reports come from. The second one that we're mostly focusing here actually had more than 300 federal and non-federal experts, had a series of regional engagements around 40 cities, and engaged thousands of public, private, uh, academic, and other reviewers. So it's actually pretty well-vetted, pretty well-documented, the things that we're we're commenting on. And so in that context, a lot of the results on the islands and um, in the island territories of the U.S. and in the water chapter and in adaptation basically tells us that one of the major things that we do need to focus on is the partnerships that we build, financing, collaborative partnerships, learning about the changing nature of risks and how we put that into planning for infrastructure over time. Adaptation entails an iterative process to management. And we can identify a lot of areas, and and Jeff has and and we have in, in different areas in water, in which adaptation is actually taking place. More efficient use of water. A lot of people might not be aware that, in fact, the United States is using less water in total than it did in 1975, it started to level off at that time. And it shows us that we can put in efficient technology, we can put in regulations to make us have better water quality, we can put in all of those things, and it still does not impact GDP in the way that people were anticipating. Whenever we ask folks through our interviews, what's your biggest fear about adapting into the future? They said, well, if I put money into that right now, that upfront cost makes me poorer now. Well, what we've shown in the adaptation chapter and in uh, water is that if you put that dollar in now, you're getting back a dollar and 50 cents tomorrow, not in 2100, but but that builds up longer. The near-term investments in adaptation actually yield near-term benefits. And we saw that right away in the way we're being more efficient in how we use water. So when we get back, We we have to ask the question, how fast do we need to adjust? We're seeing more and more what we're calling complex and cascading risks, hotter droughts, um, basically a different kind of complexity, such as we saw during Hurricane Harvey, where the impact was not simply the windstorm, but the flooding that then actually allowed the release of some toxic waste into the water. Right now, we're dealing with a complex hazard in the Gulf Coast. The mayors of New Orleans and the, mayors of, um, uh, the mayor of Baton Rouge are actually very much concerned that the Upper Midwest flooding, together with a slightly uh, with a higher than normal hurricane season, impacts the coast in such a way that it becomes very difficult to manage in the context of COVID-19 people for emergency shelters, ensuring that PPE preparation is there, ensuring that we're managing a complex and cascading risk, the combination of flooding, hurricane winds and, and, and storm surge and COVID-19. So one of the things that came out of the adaptation chapter is that the integrative nature of the coast helps us think through co- these compound threats, the infrastructure that's needed, the nature of those globally networked risk pressures from different places, the value and the benefits of the ocean economy, and then how we manage those risks in an integrated way. So one of the things to keep in mind is that we've shown through the National Climate Assessment that new approaches can further reduce risks, and we've identified those. That has been one of the major contributions of this assessment report versus the earlier ones, this report has actually gone in depth, and you heard that in Jeff's comments as well, on the advantages and disadvantages of actions and on the benefits of those actions.
0: Great, and um, I, uh, so I, I do want to backtrack just a little bit and and, and I appreciate you pointing out uh, the kind of rigorousness um, that was applied to the development of, of, of the both of these reports. Um, and and wanted to just uh, maybe ask Jeff real quick, um, what were some of the different, what were some of the other differences between uh, the National Climate Assessment four uh, versus some of its previous predecessors? Um, and and maybe as a part of that question, was this the first assessment that looked at uh, social issues, environmental justice issues, things like that, Jeff?
2: Uh, yeah, sure, Bill. And you know, Roger's now hit on a couple of really important additional themes. And, and thank you, Roger, for actually backing uh, a bit into the uh, the topic that is the NCA4. And OK, well, what is that beast? Uh, what does it really mean to us? Uh, so just quickly, Bill, to answer the first part of your question. Yeah, I mean, I, I wholeheartedly agree with Roger that the National Climate Assessment, the way it's approached, ends up with one of the most rigorous and and critically testable tomes. And it's a tome, 1,400-plus pages, you know, that you can put out there that represents the best that we know about the current state of climate science and then puts all of it into a, so what? Why do I care? You know, kind of like like a risk management framing. And, And that was a central theme that we were tasked with trying to keep in mind is the so what, and to be able to uh, connect peer reviewed, substantial empirical and other information to make essentially um, judgments in a way, looking forward about what we might expect. And it builds from what we're seeing today, as well as understanding what will happen in the future. So, you know, it's a it's a really interesting read and, and very well uh, crafted, I think as well. It's a little large and long, but the way it's actually structured, it's it's very readable. And I one of the things I, I think that is really uh, good about it is that you know scientists can be um, uh, a little bit uh, well. Uh, it's tricky, you know, the way scientists talk, they can use a lot of jargon. Nerdy and I think, jargon, yes. And I think that the uh, the climate assessment actually. Uh, tries to take that down to a, a very basic and understandable level. So that's another thing that I think is really good about it. Um, you know, the, the other thing that I say is, is that we were, we were very careful. You know, there's always a tendency when you're looking at a situation to want to try to fix it. Um, but this is an assessment of the science of climate change and variability and its impacts across the U.S. So the trick was to not venture into the policy territory or to be policy prescriptive. Uh, and I found that keeping this in mind kept our focus on the findings in the literature regarding climate change and the impacts we we're seeing or are likely to see as we move into the, to the future. But you know, again, coming back to that, so what and why should I care questions, um, the, the, the assessment comes out and it, I think it's an entirely appropriate role for the government to play uh, globally for that matter, you know, so that these kinds of information resources are developed so that policymakers, elected officials, business leaders, you name it. Uh, Others uh, have credible information to work with in considering uh, responses and actions. Um, The the couple of things that are a little bit different, uh, again, hopefully quickly here, Bill, um, about NCA4. One was that there was a really strong emphasis on moving away, not moving away, but in addition to what are called national or topical chapters like energy or coastal or ecosystems or water. Uh, to include regional chapters. And that's where you kind of get back to the, to the real localized need. Uh, you're uh, looking at uh, the state of climate at regional levels, and, that, and this enables us to paint a more comprehensive picture uh, at a higher degree of resolution, recognizing that climate change is not static, and it's not uniform. And that it impact, its impacts in particular are experienced differently depending on geography and demographics and related factors. So this localized information via the regional chapters was, was really, I think, a, a, another major thing that was, was beneficial. Uh, as far as social justice or uh, that consideration, no, this was not the first one to... Uh, invoke that in a way, but I think it has certainly taken it further, perhaps, than uh, previous, uh, the previous assessment NCA3 would have done or did do. Uh, and I think it set the stage for recognizing that, you know, and, and just in the last two to three years since the, the, uh, the assessment was done and completed and published, uh, we continue to see impacted areas, impacted populations, those that have less to work with, uh, those that need more capacity building in order to become more able to adapt and to manage their own interests and to make good decisions and to be um, uh, kind of educated in a way and, and to want to learn about how it is that they can take control of their destiny. Because that, that point about where you live and what you do um, are really tightly joined. And, and if you want to get into social and economic considerations of almost any issue, That's where the the discussions get really interesting, and they can be very difficult to uh, not only convene, but to make progress on. So uh, this this put it out there, put it out there, and I think um, it was an appropriate thing to do.
0: Great. Roger, turning to you, um, uh, as I recall, one of the um, uh, findings uh, with regard to some of the adaptation approaches was... That yes, in fact, adaptation approaches uh, are are being undertaken uh, across uh, the U.S. and I think you alluded to that earlier, but they aren't commonplace. Um, but could you maybe highlight a few of the most uh, relevant adaptation approaches uh, that you guys had identified, or or anything that you'd like to talk about that, that those chapters on adaptation?
3: So as we begin to think through, thanks very much. There there are quite a few areas around. The coastal environment in particular. One one of the things we want to draw on here is uh, to be able to identify, in the way Jeff said, that we're not simply talking about how we respond to climate change itself, given the report, but trying to assess. What have people done over the years, over the decades, to respond to changing environments of which climate is a part? And I want to mention that simply because it is actually taking advantage of existing actions and activities that people have put into place. One of the big things that we identified was, of course, that um, adaptation is taking place and there are benefits. To being proactive about it one of the key areas in which we're seeing some of those are in climate resilience across the um, national estuary and reserve system in which there's been enhancing coastal resilience decision support tools the um, storm surge barriers in the hudson river estuary getting a better sense of um, uh, of how to develop and design uh, tidal road flooding management but one of the other thing, types of things we're documenting is that given the report, people are thinking much more creatively about how we can reset and redesign our systems into the future to be more efficient. And one of those cases, actually, the San Francisco Public Utilities now requesting that every um, a large office building over 200,000, 250,000 square feet develops a green roof to manage the water demand, the cooling demand, and to operate their buildings more efficiently. So there have been those kinds of cases. There are others such as uh, Native American communities reintroducing um, you know, land use and land, land management strategies such as protecting um, for nearshore erosion among the, in the Rio Grande Basin. And so we can identify a series of these, which was a big major goal of this assessment report, a big part of the report that was, I think, different in the sense was actually given the time, and for since the first one to this one, the opportunity is to assess, in fact, what people are doing, not just what are the risks, not just what is at risk, but who is at risk and what is being done about it. So we have some uh, some examples such as pumping back tide water near the Venetian causeway in Miami, and there are a list of these. And so in getting back to your question about how best to use the report, I think we, we've been able to, to take the report and say, okay, in a city environment, here are the types of things that are being done. What can be done to help manage these integrated risks from the uh, land side and the ocean side relative to coast? For watershed management, for uh, salinity intrusions up into uh, estuaries and coastal. what can be done or what has been done? and what can be learned. So we have a set of those around the country, and along with the impact, we have what people have been doing to respond to them, and I've just mentioned a couple.
0: Jeff, did you have any um, other other uh, examples to, that you might want to highlight uh, as far as the uh, adaptation approaches?
2: Yeah, sure, uh, Bill. One of the things about the NCA4 is it, it's a very interactive uh, tome. And, it has, uh, in case of the national chapters and the regional chapters as well, uh, interactive maps where you can click on a region and look at both the impacts and the adaptation measures that are uh, currently underway are being considered. So it's a great way to get a, a good, solid understanding of what are the impacts where, uh, the nature of those impacts, and uh, what adaptation measures are underway. Uh, I, I preface my remarks on this topic by saying that I think there's still little focus on the major investments or the immediate implementation actions, um, including, you know, the cost trade offs and such that, that we need to undertake to be uh, successful in adaptation. Um, you know, financial resources are being devoted. Uh, adaptation is going on to some degree, uh, but it's often limited and often really expensive, uh, to do the kinds of things that are being done. You know, things like, uh, Typically, constructing seawalls—you uh, know that—that's been done for centuries. Um, but new things. Uh, Roger mentioned tidal, uh, tidally influenced roads. Roads are being elevated. It's not the first time that roads have been elevated. We do this all the time in major cities where we build overpasses. But you're, you're elevating an entire road structure along a coastline. And imagine what that looks like. You know, can kind of visualize what that would take and how high do you elevate it. Uh, based on what you expect would be the uh, increasing rate of sea level over a period of time. Uh, one of the things that we did in our Coastal Effects chapter was we did a, looked at a case study, uh, Norfolk, Virginia, quintessential um, American city on the East Coast, uh, and one of the largest naval bases in the world, if not the largest. Big-time considerations and concerns, um, you know, they they are kind of getting wet. They're getting wet regularly, uh, serious physical financial and social impacts of, of uh, a rising sea level and high tide flooding is, is really happening on a regular basis there one of the highest rates in the country so the city is investing in in both classical mitigation but also adaptation actions um, but the estimates are that it's going to cost hundreds of millions if not billions of dollars to improve a range of things including storm water you know flood balls tide gates uh pumping stations that kind of thing and part of what uh, is also occurring is the application of what we call green infrastructure or, or natural nature-based infrastructure projects, which, by the way, have multiple benefits, not just coastal protection, but other things like recreational value and, uh, and water quality value. But this, these projects tend to improve water quality. They mitigate erosion. Uh, they protect communities. And, and they restore habitats, uh, increasing value for species. Um, the other projects that are, and this is happening within Norfolk, the other projects that uh, we documented in our uh, report, if I recall, include, you know, they, they're constructing berms, they're uh, reclaiming uh, waterways and wetlands, and, and as I said earlier, uh, raising roads and structures. Um, and, you know, flooding is really the name of the game there. Uh, it's the topic that is the most expensive expensive to mitigate and to adapt to, uh, but they are uh, one of the, the leading areas where certain kinds of engineering and or other strategic approaches uh, are being tested and we'll see how it works out. The other thing that I wanted to say about adaptation is that you know it's really foundational to be able to be in a place where everybody, let's get back to the equity thing, right? Everybody has the capacity to act. Um, and the way you do that is, is to be you know, cognizant that, that there has to be information. It's gotta be t- trusted information. And it, it, in a way, at a community level, you know, you're not just raising awareness, but you're, you're co-developing essentially that set of information. Roger talked about values earlier. That's a really important, essential consideration in how it is that anybody seeks to engage with a community or a community even talks to itself about what they matter, what what they care about. Um, So you you know you got to be able to build this capacity and and information and awareness is important. Uh, You know social structures uh, they they either work or they don't, Um, and when you have partnerships, it it tends to be uh, you know many hands lift uh, the uh, the heavy weight. Uh, So the partnerships help in this way. Uh, That helps with capacity. And then, you know, governance. And and I want to overplay governance because it's not always the kindest word to put out there, especially when you go in and talk to a community like my my function, my office, and NOAA does a lot of uh, in convening conversations. Um, You know, because you get into the territory of, oh, you're going to regulate us. Um, Oh, you're going to legislate us. Um, It's better to essentially get in there, co-develop, talk about, and, and come out with something that represents a, a, a guidance uh, approach or a guiding approach to how that community would choose to adapt. And then to talk about the kinds of adaptation options that would be available and their costs, and how soon do you wanna start working on this? Uh, what is your risk posture? You know, do you think that in the next 10 years it's gonna be a big deal to, to confront some of these issues, or the next 50 years, or the next 100 years? When Roger talked about infrastructure that is growing old and tired in the U.S., without a doubt, that is the case, and our electrical power grid, other things like that. We got to, you know, start to think about how the infrastructure of the future will be more resilient given the changes that are we are experiencing than the infrastructure of the past.
0: Yeah, I think that the case in Michigan with the dam bursting uh, recently is is a prime example of that. Um yeah, so uh, uh, I think, uh, Jeff, um, I think uh, Roger had touched briefly on, um, and, and you did too, uh, some of the ways of, of, of helping our audience uh, who may have been kind of uh, intimidated when you said there's 1,400 pages of this document and uh, how to navigate and maybe uh, – uh, better be able to use this. Are there and you've noted a, a number of things uh, as far as the interactive nature of the the document. Are, are there some other tips or uh, suggestions you might have uh, uh, for our audience to how to get the most out of this document? Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, I'm, I
2: talked about the plain speak part of this, which I think is a is a phenomenal attribute of the assessment. Uh, It's not a scientific bargain. Um, To navigate this thing, it's a tome, uh, but to navigate it, uh, right up front is a a really well-written guide to the report. I mean, how many documents have a guide on the front end that has, in very short form, concise uh, and informative and friendly uh, information about what is in that report and how to get to the pieces of the report? Uh, Each of the chapters has an executive summary, people can go in and look at the executive summary, read just the key messages and come away with a really good understanding of of essentially what's in there without digging into the uh, related pages. And and then, you know, as I said before, the chapters have these interactive national maps that um, enable users to explore the types of impacts and adaptation measures on a region by region basis. But on balance, you know, I think the assessment is really one of the most user-friendly government documents that I've seen and certainly been involved in. Um, and it has a vast amount of information, but, uh, you know, if the user has an interest in a quick overall summary, uh, it, it has uh, well-crafted summary findings right up front that, that consolidates key messages and supporting evidence uh, from all the chapters and types of paragraphs. So I'd also point people to that. I mean, you don't even have to go into the whole thing. You just go right to that uh, that uh, front front uh, overall summary and and it combines all of the chapters and and looks at things from that standpoint of the key messages and the evidence that backs them up so that's what I would offer as far as not being scared by it
0: <laughs> great um, and Roger anything anything additional from you
3: sure let me just add a complimentary comment and and um, one of the, the things that um, I, I think Jeff is backgrounding that he shouldn't is the capabilities of offices like the one that he leads. There are activities within that coastal office, within the regional integrated sciences assessments, which you'll see in the document, in which we talk about in the adaptation chapter and throughout the document on who are your colleagues where you live that are working on this issue that you can draw on for guidance, feedback, asking hard questions, um, asking questions about what they know and don't know that are within your own region. And I think, as, as, as was hinted, no website, no document answers every question in the way someone, a single person wants them done. And and even in that setting, as we know the old saying, perfect planning is a figment in the mind of the planner. So when we, we draw our are examples, as we have, you know, whether it's uh, the k- things we we're talking about with the Great Lakes Climate Action Network or um, the Puerto Rico Department developing its own um, uh, climate assessment facility. They're a network of not just researchers, but people who are supported by offices such as Jeff, by other agencies, by NGOs, by partners to help us understand how to apply, how to assess, apply, and use the information that is in these documents. So we are not alone. In other words, uh, we, we learned a long time ago that the old transom model of, you know, you toss it, toss it through the top of the door and somebody catches it, doesn't work. But we know that in dealing with the complex types of risks that we're talking about, where multiple things happen, you know, droughts are hotter, or you get floods and storm surge, or you get flood, storm surge and technological hazards requires robust local and regional networks for city planners, for people managing farms and agricultural and food security issues, for people managing um, nearshore coastal erosion, to which they can go to help get not the guidance in a lecturing sort of way, but a space in which we can say, okay, between us, what is the question Well, here's the piece from this document that might be useful. Here are the uncertainties around that, but here's the piece that you can use. So I think in addition to the the document itself, something that is identified in there are the capabilities that exist in one's region, state and locality, uh, things like Sea Grant and so on, that can actually help interpret the results in a way that is meaningful to locales. And now there's something very important in that setting. It's not simply... How do we say what is in this document and how do we use it? But how do we share and understand the risks that we're sharing and dealing with in a particular locale? One of the big issues we have when dealing with folks is we actually talk to people about what they're already experiencing. How long have their family been in a location? How long have they worked in a particular place before even saying, and this matters to you? Only when we know what already matters to them can we then say this also matters. So I think that idea of robust regional networks, such as comes out of Jeff's and others offices, help provide the insight and guidance on an ongoing basis because there's no one time planning for the future
0: great and um i will uh put a pitch in here right now uh for something that that jeff's office does that i think is is really helpful in in trying to look at uh adaptation planning uh the digital coast is a great resource is an online resource that uh provides data tools and trainings um, that have been vetted by uh, the coastal managers um, in a in a number of areas, and and I think that is a tremendous resource, and, and hopefully there are uh, many other resources like that that you've identified in the in the report. Um, and Roger, I'll stick with you, uh, uh, kind of uh, kind of turning the corner and, and 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 now looking a little bit out into the future. Um, uh, with all the work that you've done on the, uh, the climate assessment. Um, what do you guys uh, or help our audience understand where sort of adaptation implementation is in the U.S. is heading? Um, and as part of that answer, if you could reflect on how some of the challenges and opportunities uh, from the recent pandemic, as well as the resulting financial uh, fiscal implications of the pandemic, as well as the heightened awareness and need to address societal inequalities um, and injustices uh, may uh, affect uh, how that uh, process moves out in the future. And Roger, start with you.
3: Yeah, so let's, let's think through where these ideas are leading us. What are some of the fundamental questions that we're asking How can the public sector, the private sector, investors, and capital markets be encouraged to invest in risk reduction and resilience-building activities over the long term? How can we best encourage a culture of preparedness, communicating risk, and promoting meaningful action that benefits people? Uh, One of the major things we have is not simply saying, here's a risk. That never convinces anyone. What are the pathways? How am I better off for dealing with these issues? How do we continue to address the needs of vulnerable populations in emergencies while working to reduce some of those disparities in action? The most important aspect is how do we imagine equitable and resilient design into the future? And how do we build from existing lessons? Reaching different communities implies building networks and building networks that broaden the nature of who the actors are. And for us, actors are not simply users of information, it is the the people and institutions who also influence that use and the benefits of that use. And so by broadening the actor network in our sense means the investors, the beneficiaries, the marginalized communities, and the people that actually invest in long-term planning and, and action. So to keep that that thread going, I do want to mention that even though we are pointing out so many of the cases in which we're actually showing significant efforts at adaptation and significant efforts at people working together, that the changing nature of the risk, the, the increasingly complex and cascading nature of the risk, the ways in which the rates of change are occurring, the surprises we face on what we call systemic risk, the fact that when you have droughts in different parts of the world, it affects our markets. When you have a, a, a low flows on the Mississippi or high flows on the Mississippi, it, uh, it impacts what we export and import through those regions, and it impacts every town and community along that basin. Those types of systemic risks and the actions that follow from experiencing those a form of contagion. You know, buy, buying. Um, basically the actions that follow from them, are the types of things that we need to work with people on making the most effective and equitable choices. So I think it is critical that, that, yes, we broaden the actor network to all who are affected, but we do so in a way that actually shows why everyone is better off from taking those actions. And we have some really good examples from those in the um, report. There are some other aspects that we might not be thinking about directly that might not come out that is actually talked about in the report on the international chapter, which is the protection of our ports and coasts are extremely important to US national security. And we need to think in terms of protecting and managing our infrastructure and the people that work in and supporting that infrastructure Everything from hospitals and ports to transportation systems to things like the Henry's Hub in Louisiana and elsewhere that are actually fundamental to U.S. national security. So reaching out and broadening the ACTA network to those most vulnerable for me is not simply it is absolutely an issue of equity, but it is also an issue of national security.
0: Great. Thank you, Roger. And Jeff, would you like to... uh propose some comments on that?
2: Well, number one, the comment would be that I wholeheartedly agree with what Roger has put out there, the last thought about national security. When we look at the the impacts to our ports and harbors and uh, basically trade moving out of the U.S. and trade moving into the U.S., you know, essentially 90 percent of uh, international trade arrives via our boats, large vessels come into the harbors. You go to a harbor, you go to a port you see the operations and it's pretty, pretty darn uh, impressive. And if you think about the human body, think about the heart and think about the blood vessels uh, leading out of the heart, coming back into the heart, arteries and veins, and then throughout the whole, you've seen pictures of this. That's what our international transportation network connected to the ports and harbors looks like when you look at a map of the entire U.S. and the way in which we uh, provide for the entire U.S is via uh, as far as international trade and, and production of assets and commodities, um, it, it comes that way. So is that a risk? Absolutely. Is it going to be affected by sea level rise and other considerations, uh, increasing frequency and intensity of storms in coastal areas? Absolutely. So take that into account. The other thing that I, I would um, want to uh, comment on is the, this issue of compounding risk, which Roger touched on uh, a couple of times, And Bill, you had mentioned about commenting on the COVID-19 pandemic environment. I I currently co-chair a a federal interagency group. It's focused on disaster risk reduction. And since the onset of COVID back in, well, essentially January within the US, uh, we have been working across the federal agencies to share information on hazard forecasts and outlooks, uh, first and foremost. Uh, Those would include uh, wildfire, uh, severe storms, spring flooding, and most recently, just uh, late last week, we heard from the National Hurricane Center um, director about the hurricane season. So I raise this because for each of the engagements that we're having on a monthly basis with the agencies, we're, we're having a dialogue on the same questions. And we've designed it that way because we want to improve our hazard risk management and response roles uh, across agencies, everything from FEMA to the Geological Survey to NOAA. Um, but specifically looking at how science and technology in particular, is affected by or how it enables um, hazard response uh, actions during this kind of um, concurrent event, that being COVID. And uh, you know we're, we're also sharing lessons learned on the best practices. Uh, or the, the, the ways in which uh, agencies are already adapting, uh, documenting uh, these and, and the things that people are employing uh, in, in how they conduct their operational hazard risk management and response uh, operations. Uh, so it's you know a really timely thing that we're doing this. It's been beneficial uh, across the agencies to learn from each other about those best practices, you know, not just wearing masks. It's a lot more involved in that. Um, and that's one of the things that I I think is a good illustration of what it means to be experiencing a, um, a major national, um, hazard in a way event, which COVID-19 is, uh, with the continuation of the normal natural hazards that we always, uh, experience. And, um, you know, when I, when I think about examples of that, I, I, I think that um, just being able to, to conduct, for example, hurricane evacuations, like what is it that the nation, East, Eastern states, Gulf states in particular for the Atlantic hurricane season, what is it that those emergency managers at the state level are going to do to, to adapt and provide information to the public about how to evacuate? during COVID, because hurricane season is upon us now it has officially started and we've already had three named storms so what what do you do how do you do things differently and we know how significant COVID has been and will continue to be throughout the summer if not well into the fall uh and hurricane season goes right until at least you know nominally until the end of october so that's a good example of you know how these things actually either work with each other or present some pretty significant challenges in terms of how we uh, how we manage.
0: Roger, um, has there been any significant changes in our understanding of the climate science or impact since the publication of the uh, volume one the climate science report?
3: Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, so one of the things that um, the, the report does an excellent job of is it tells us what types of events you know, temperature extremes, uh, in some cases, precip extremes, certainly cold events as well, you know, the likelihood of the two extremes, very reliably what some of those projections might look like and what um, the likelihoods are. What the report also does is it gives us a sense of why certain things such as strong convective storms, hurricanes, and others are hard to predict, but uncertainty doesn't mean we don't know anything about them. It means we don't know everything about them. And so we do have a sense that uh, certainly the strength of the more intense storms might be increasing. We do have a sense of those things. But most importantly, related to what Jeff was just saying, is that the report tells us that we're seeing m- much more The occurrence of complex risks, as I mentioned before, one of the big issues we have in the desert southwest is not simply drought, but the fact droughts are hotter. Not simply windstorms, windstorms combined with stronger storm surge and wave heights, and upland flooding. As I was just mentioning, um, you know, regarding one of the big concerns we're facing uh, on the Lower Mississippi right now, among those cities is exactly what Jeff was saying about evacuation, not just because of the hurricane events, but from upland flooding and the plans, the contracts and arrangements being made by different cities around not just sheltering people, but do they have enough PPE for first responders, public works and so on. So the scientific aspects of the report is actually helping us understand the changing complexity of risks. There's an old saying that the rates of change change might be more important than the directions of change and we're seeing the rates of change even separate when you take out the exposure and the um you know when we link all of those uh human beings we're the ones that sort of for the most part turn hazards into disasters but the hazards themselves are changing they're becoming more and more complex over time the interaction of both the natural system and our technological systems and so i think the report Especially the first um, uh, part one of the report really does a great job of outlining the potential for certain surprises in the physical climate system. So I think that is really important because what it means is that uh, we need to be planning under deep uncertainty. And therefore, we need to understand what some of the impacts are, but also what our partnerships with many of the communities we just described means in terms of managing risk. I do want to mention just one thing in that setting. Adaptation and planning for both the things we can predict and the things we're not can range from, as Jeff was saying, like the city of Norfolk, envisioning and designing a new coastal community for the future to managing and reducing marine debris on our beaches that increases flooding, that damages wildlife, affects our fishing. In that setting, what the report really does really well is for all those scales, identify some of the interventions we can take and some of the things that we can do. What we need to be clearer about is not just the benefits of doing those, but how we sustain the collaborations that get us to manage not for change, but through change, given the complex and cascading nature of risk.
0: Great. Well, I think we're approaching uh, uh, the end of our time today, but, uh, I did want to, uh, have you guys provide for our listeners. Um, uh, if they are more interested in wanted to find out about the fourth national climate assessment, um, uh, where can they go to find that? And uh, I'll say, Jeff, how about you?
2: Uh, sure, Bill, I, I mentioned two things. One is, uh, a really big one, another tome and <laughs> multiple tomes. Uh, I I don't think I said it, but I think Roger may have mentioned the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC. Uh, It it is created uh, on a regular basis by a cadre of uh, international scientists uh, interested in very similar things to what we have conducted uh, within the National Climate Assessment. So it produces regular reports on the state of and and the projected changes uh, in the global climate. Um, And it has uh, the reports that are tailored uh, amongst its many volumes, uh, especially for policymakers. So if you really want to dig in, look at things on a global basis and kind of get really, really smart on a whole host of things, um, the IPCC assessments are probably the most authoritative thing out there. Um, Another, and this is is digging uh, deeper into one particular area, and I only mention it because I've talked a lot about tidal flooding, recurrent flooding, um, but it's also a foundation for what went into Volume One of the NCA4. Uh, it's a it's a technical report. It's actually developed by a number of partners, including NOAA, USGS, Rutgers University, uh, others, on uh, global and regional sea level rise scenarios for the U.S. So people hear a lot about sea level rise and uh, the scenarios, but when you have one foot, three feet, eight feet, you know what 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 does it look like uh, over the time uh, the time horizon? And this is a report that was published, I think, in early 2017. But uh, it is basically a technical report, but it's also written in such a way, has an executive summary that gives a good read on, on this particular element. Because the tidal flooding thing is just, a, it's not just a nuisance, it's an economic kind of real risk that communities are facing right now. Uh, Norfolk, Miami, Charleston, my home where I live. Um, you know, up and down the coast, Annapolis, Maryland, underwater a lot of the time these days. So uh,
0: I'd, I'd recommend that one as well. Great. And uh, and I, I'm sure that we can that most of the listeners can just probably Google uh, Fourth National Climate Assessment to get uh, to that online document. Um and, and Roger, are there any other uh, reports or summary documents or websites or materials that you might uh, direct our audience uh, that might be interested in, in finding out more?
3: Yeah. Um, I think the, the USDA climate hubs, the climate uh, science centers, and the regional integrated sciences assessments uh, in different regions around the U.S. Uh, pull together reports. Uh, that help people understand the types of information that is in the national assessment and climate.gov but make them but spend the time to make them more reasonably reason regionally accessible and understandable so We can certainly send around some some lists uh, With those I think the type of report that Jeff just mentioned is really important because they are in fact authoritative and credible and have gone through the, the sort of process to make them that. So it's very important that in using you know, information, especially in planning for the future, that we are relying on credible information.
0: Right. And I, I think they're really helpful in trying to get people to use consistent sets of data to, to develop those sea uh, uh, level rise uh, curves or whatever. Um, well, gentlemen, Thank you so much for being here. Um, Are there any final thoughts that you'd
3: like to leave us with, uh, starting with Roger? So one last thing I'd like to mention in thinking through the National Climate Assessment and other approaches such as this Mm -hmm. is the old saying that that, uh, one of my mentors, Gilbert White, used to say, which is resilient infrastructure requires resilient people. And so, yes, we can identify the physical risks. We can identify the social costs and the social benefits. But it is really people's ability to make themselves see themselves making changes in their environment for the good of their family, their resources, their the environment around them that really matters. And so ensuring that capabilities of people at the local level are supported and that we can identify the innovations that they're making locally and scale those up becomes extremely important. And I think that's one of the things the National Assessment has tried to do.
0: Great. Jeff, any, any final thoughts? Sure, Bill. Yeah, thanks. Uh, well,
2: you know, Roger said it very well. Uh, I, I want to thank you, Bill, and, and the American Shoreline uh, Podcast Network, I guess, uh, for the opportunity to participate. So, I, again, kudos to getting the message out. This is very helpful. Uh, the thought I'd, I'd like to leave listeners with is really pretty simple. Um, you know, it's always on my mind. It's, it's that while our, our climate has always changed, the accelerated pace of the changes we are experiencing during this modern age, and I really mean essentially since the industrial revolution, but even more so in the last 20 to 30 years, uh, is really significant, um, as are the impacts to our environment, economies, and societies. Uh, uh, Roger and I have both hit, I think, pretty hard on that, the connection, the three-legged stool of life. Um, and and these are these are impacts that we are seeing now not that we can expect we can expect probably more and maybe more extreme but we are seeing these changes right now so um, what i would leave people with is is to encourage um listeners to continue to learn number one and and to seek out authoritative sources for scientifically sound information such as what is found in the u.s national climate assessment that was our topic today and um, it is just that Uh, And I know that Roger agrees, and all the authors that were involved would say the same thing. Uh, We feel pretty good about it. So look look for authoritative sources like this. And I hope that, you know, in talking with uh, folks today, that uh, people will have a better understanding both of it as well as, you know, the opportunity that it provides to kind of get in there, dig around, and uh, become that much uh, more informed. So thank you.
0: Jeff and Roger, thank you so much for being on the, the pod today. Um, And uh, both of you, uh, maybe I can get uh, you both back later to talk a little bit more about maybe some of the specific things that you're working on in your programs today, because there's a lot of great stuff that you guys are doing. Um, But anyways, uh, I wanted to also uh, thank uh, American Shoreline Podcast Network for hosting this show and uh, hope to see everybody on the next show. So thanks and goodbye. Thank you. Thank you.